Welcome to episode 194 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Listen, I gotta say, I just love your opening more and more <laughs> every time. It's so good. I do practice several times a week. I stand in front of the mirror and I, I practice. Uh, I even hold the microphone next to my mouth so I get the distance right. And none of that is true, though. <laughs> I'm not sure if we said this before. It seems like the kind of thing we might have mentioned. Do zero preparation for this it's podcast true. for the most part. Yeah, for the most part. Certainly, of course, when it comes to things like question quest or crafting or curating some kind of topic matter, we're always being thoughtful. But if people ask, "Is there any editing that happens after you guys record?" the answer to that question is a resounding, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every once in a while, there's like very little editing. Every once in a while, something doesn't sit right, and we pull it out. But for the most part, what you hear is what you get. And hopefully, I, I think that makes us like a little bit more endearing. So when people are listening yeah. to us and they're like, wow, what Jesse said there, he kind of just sounded like a Nate. That's because it was in real time and we're just having a real conversation about theological matters. It's true. It's true. My preparation for the podcast usually involves um, like getting a beer and like a box <laughs> of chips or a bag of chips. A box of chips. A box of chips. <laughs> and uh, that's about it. Uh, maybe like I plugging my equipment in, I guess that's it. And this is the kind of thing that leads to wonderful illustrations, metaphors or comparisons. So for instance, the whole thing that we generated where salvation is like cake or the cake is salvation. Yes. That, that's a throwback to, I think two episodes ago. Yeah. So and, and actually we're in a whole series. We're about to get into part two of this short series we're doing called freedom to believe. But of course, before we do that, the crowds want to know, what are we affirming and denying this week? And so, Tony, I look to you to start us off. So this is a real simple, straightforward affirmation, but it comes with a little bit of a denial on the front end of it. I have been having this just craving for a Cabot sour cream and salsa dip. They make this dip. It's like pre-mixed. It's sour cream and salsa, and it's like the most delicious thing. And like two or three stores that I've gone to... I've gone out of my way to go get it, and they've been out. So so I finally was like, I've had enough, and I made my own sour cream and salsa dip. And oh. it's it's not the same. Uh, I mean, it, it, you say that like it's some mysterious recipe. You just <laughs> put sour cream and salsa in a bowl and mix it up. It's not, it's not like a special thing. But I'm affirming sour cream and salsa dip. I'm not sure, but I think it might be the most delicious thing on the planet. But this is all about proportions, right? That was why, why right. my response yeah, yeah, was yeah. that way is uh, getting it right. So we might have to explain this for people who are not familiar with New England because I, I know about this, of course, growing up in New England and Cabot Farms in Vermont. But in Pennsylvania, where I live, I actually had a colleague at one point who had traveled to Vermont. And once he learned that I was from that general area, because in this part of the world, if you're just above the Mason-Dixon line, it's all New England is like a right. aphromorphous blob. He would ask whenever I'd go up, like, can you get me all this Cabot stuff? Like, they also yeah. have, like, a, a sprinkled cheese, like yeah. cheddar cheese, which is uh, unique. So I feel like you got to unpack the fact that, like, why this is a big deal. Well, I mean, Cabot, if you ever have had Cabot, if you're a listener and you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. It's kind of <laughs> I, I mean, it's there's no mystery to it. It's it's like a delicious dairy farm company. Um, like they have the best, like when you think of, if you go to a store and you buy Vermont sharp cheddar, like if you're in some other part of the country and they have Vermont sharp cheddar, it's Cabot cheddar that they're trying to like replicate. Like they're, right. they're that world famous it's and standard. you'd think that they would be wider spread than that, but they're not, they're really like a regional company and they make all these good sour cream based dips. They have like a spreadable cheddar cheese, which is like, just inject it straight into my veins and I'll be happy. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so they have this, this salsa verde sour cream, dip that I just love. I, I like it because maybe I'm crazy, but I like my sour cream dip to be more sour cream and less salsa where some people probably like more salsa, but they, they get the right mix. So I tried to replicate that. I wasn't quite, there was a little liquidy, so I need more sour cream. I actually think it's, that's a unique thing. Yeah. Uh, at least where I'm living right now. I, I think if I brought to a party, a dip that was 
slightly orange colored and was like, oh, no, no, this is just salsa and sour cream. They would be like, get out. Yeah. <laughs> bring your salsa or bring your sour cream. But how dare you put yeah. them together? But the, it, to your point, all I want to emphasize is that's delicious. And they have a whole series of them. I'm not sure you can get them everywhere, which is why they're so coveted. Yeah. But it's worth trying. I, I actually haven't thought about doing that myself. But I'm actually really intrigued now. I actually feel like you've inspired me a little bit. Yeah. I mean, apparently you can't get it here anymore either. I, I would blame it on like a national <laughs> supply chain issue, but the supply chain is like some dude driving from Vermont to New Hampshire and he just, I don't know if he took the week off, but like every store in the area is out of this dip that I love so much. Have you ever been to Cabot Farms? I haven't. No, I have oh, not. It's, it's actually a super fun experience, including like the last time I was there, they kind of lead you into a small amphitheater and then you see a video of their history and it's kind of like cheese socialism. Like they talk about like it's a co- it's a cooperative, which is really interesting. So there's there's something about that. So it's worth actually visiting if you're in the area or if you want a cheese related destination. I highly recommend Vermont. I have to ask you now as a follow up question. Have you done? <laughs> Have you done the Ben and Jerry's tour in still Vermont? Yes, I have. Because that's also a lot of socialism. Yes. <laughs> a lot of a lot of really gay socialism is what the Ben and Jerry's tour is all about. And I mean, like, so, like actually gay uh, socialism. So here's the thing about this podcast. Here's what I knew when we started. The episode number was 194. I wasn't even sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> That that's it. And I love how far we've already come and we're just a few minutes in. This is yeah. the dream. It is. Well, what what are you affirming today? Well, nothing Jesse? nearly as exciting as that, I think, now that I've heard your your affirmation. <laughs> so, I just figured I would throw out some different type of media that's not music. So, I'm affirming with this comedian named Nate Bargazzi and in particular his special called The Tennessee Kid. It's just really good, clean, non-dirty, non-weird humor. And to me, at least, it's super funny. He's got a wonderfully dry sense of humor. He's great at storytelling. And I think it's unique in a way that I can't really put my finger on. So I'm affirming with Nate Bargatze, the Tennessee kid. And I think you can find it on Netflix in particular. But almost anything, if you just Google him or look him up on YouTube, you're going to find some really super funny stuff. Uh, Have you seen any of his things? I have not, no. So I wish I had something to contribute to your affirmation, but I I don't. I like stand-up comedy. That's like, well, so, so here's the thing is like, I'm, I'm kind of particular about stand up comedy because I just don't want to watch anything that's crass or weird or inappropriate. And I also consider myself a person that's kind of stingy with the laughing when you're just watching something on TV. And this actually made me laugh out loud several times. And now my wife and I quote this back to each other regularly. Um, and, and just to like whet everybody's appetite, just to give you a slight taste and to maybe propel you into watching this I'll say this one line, which I find hilarious, but you'll find completely out of context. And that is, I'd be shocked if we don't touch that dead horse today. That's <laughs> all I'm going to say. Funny. <laughs> I really like, uh, I really like Brian Regan and my, my wife, your sister quote, uh, Brian Regan all the time. Cause we're like, I had nine months to do this project and I did nothing. <laughs> the yellow one is the sun. Are you an idiot, Brian? Uh, apparently. <laughs> So it's, it's in that same vein. Like it's just, you laugh at it because it's silly and it's wonderful. Yeah. And I almost feel like there's nothing better than having something wholesome to laugh at. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, it's hard to come by. Like it's hard to come by good stand up comedy. That's not just filthy and disgusting all the time. So that's why I'm going with Nate Bargatze. So look it up people. Let us know what you think. Yes. Money much moosen. That was well done. That was well done. So we are now moving into the denials section where we get very serious about things in life. Go ahead. Yes. So this is a very serious denial. So buckle up, buttercup. Um, (laughs) So with the affirmation of sour cream salsa dip, I have to acknowledge um, that I'm denying tortilla chips that are too thin. So mm. they're one of I the things you. about tortilla chips. Sometimes tortilla chips are delicious on their own and you just want to eat them. Yes. But most of the time, tortilla chips are just a disguised spoon that you can eat to get the dip into your mouth. That's right. And, and when I have this salsa dip in front of me, it's not socially appropriate to just eat it with a spoon. Otherwise, I probably would. So I want a good sturdy salsa chip, like a good sturdy tortilla chip 
to scoop that stuff right in my mouth. The tortilla chips that I bought were too thin, so now I have like a sludge of salsa sour cream dip and tortilla chip crumbs in the bottom of my bowl. So I'm just denying tortilla chips that are too thin. That's not right. You know, here's the thing. The theology, of course, covers all of life, and I think that these chips are not an exception to that because this is, again, just proof. It sounds like I'm being trite, but this is just proof Yeah, that sin is rampant in our world yet, that there would be this kind of structural lack of integrity in something that is supposed to be delicious and deliver a dip into your mouth is something that I can only attribute to the fall. Yeah, you know, J.R. Tolkien is brilliant, and he used this <laughs> phrase to describe... What is happening right you, now? You're going to love this. This this phrase to describe the effects of the ring on, on Bilbo after many years, he said he felt like too much butter yes. scraped over bread. Yes, I just but read I, this. I think it would have been better if he said, I feel like a thin tortilla chip that's broken into the dip. It's much better. Here's what I want to say to that. Until <laughs> next time, honor everyone. <laughs> Episode. I'm, I'm looking forward to coming up with the title for this one. Listen, that was so good. That I mean, I, I feel like I want to just stop. Like we should take a second to stop recording <laughs> and you and I just to reflect on how beautiful that whole thing unfolded was. <laughs> I just read that. Okay, so here's the thing I have to ask about the tortilla chips. Are you pro or against the tortilla chips that are shaped like a bowl so that allow you to like grab a bunch of dip? So this is a complicated question, as most questions are with me. <laughs> That's why I asked it, yeah. Uh, I'm pro the concept, but the only chip that I found that really does that is like commercial tortilla chips. And I really like like really good authentic, like like small small batch tortilla <laughs> chips. I, you know what I'm talking about? Like the ones that are not like, they don't come from Frito-Lay's company. Like I like local tortilla chips. Yes. And you don't find a lot of that. They're like just Craft. normal. Tortilla yeah. chips, if you yeah, will. Mi- micro micro <laughs> brew tortilla chips. <laughs> micro fried. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm totally with you. I, I Actually, I think you said it best. The idea is brilliant. The way that they destroy and cut the roof of your mouth, not so yes. great. Yeah, it's worth it. To to get more dip in your mouth, to just shred the top of. I feel the same way about Fruit Loops and Captain Crunch too. So, wait, how Fruit Loops destroy the roof of your mouth? Yeah, I, they just shred me. I'm like, Man, I haven't had a loop in a long time. It's but. like some tiny toucan has been in my mouth with a knife, just shredding the top of my mouth up. <laughs> I, I don't even know where to go anymore. Well, how this about is, we go into your denial so then? Yeah, that was uh, a glorious segue. So uh, once again, I feel like I'm just coming down off of your high. So uh, I was going to, uh, d- I guess, deny against. I almost went <laughs> to affirmation. Like, Jesse's dumbfounded I, right now. I just, yeah. So I'm, uh, listen, I'm sorry. I got to address this. I'm thinking about the Fruit Loops thing. <laughs> because I know that like certain cereals do destroy your mouth, like Captain Crunch. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like chewing that, on fiberglass. Yeah, it's it's delicious, but you're exactly right. It's like you might as well just have a fiberglass boat hole rubbed against the roof of your mouth. <laughs> but um, the the I just sorry I got so surprised by the Fruit Loops. It also made me think like I haven't had Fruit Loops in a really really long time, and yeah. that sounds so delicious. Right I know, now. right? I'm gonna go buy some Fruit Loops. <laughs> sounds so good. We need more sponsors for this podcast. So I am gonna deny against. Um, you see, I have like, there's no life anymore left within me. <laughs> it's just like this is a, just a fact that's dumb based on the fact that you know you already said something awesome. I'm denying against uh, uh, the way in which deer jump out and cross the road. It, there must be a method to their madness in which they do this, but I'm, I'm saying this only because I've had a slight injury to my foot, and so. Uh, I used to try to do some running and I've uh, been doing a little bit more biking. And this morning on this beautiful Lord's Day, I went out early in the morning and was biking and a series of deer crossed me. And it's it's obviously like one thing when they cross you and you're in a vehicle, but be in the bike, on the bike, in the bike, this is not like being in Christ. I was on the bike <laughs> and they crossed in front of me. And then I got super nervous that there was like a, a large string of deer that were about to jump out. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to hit these deer on the bike and that's going to destroy all of us. And I got particularly nervous because two crossed one popped up. And like, I always said to my wife, like, if you see one deer cross a road, that means there's, there's always other another deer one. coming. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's always coming. They go in groups. 
And so two passed. And then 20 feet down, I saw another one pop up. And then I saw another one coming up out of this really glorious field. And it was coming up the embankment right to the road. And I literally said, because I was on this really rural path, I was speaking to the deer. I was like, you can come. You just need to let me know if you're going or not. And like we had this, like there was honestly, I feel like a second of eye contact. And then he turned or she and went away. Cause I don't know that much about deer. He went away into this field, but just stood in the middle of the field with its butt toward me, like just kind of waiting, like hunched down. It was so weird. And I realized in the telling of the story, so uninteresting. <laughs> <laughs> you got mooned by a deer is really what happened. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm denying against. But yeah, the deer on the bike really kind of freaked me out because I realized if they do pop up, I mean, like if you collide with a deer, that's no joke, actually. Yeah, they're not small creatures. No, they're not. And so I'm hoping that this resonates with somebody. I almost was hesitant, almost was hesitant to share the story because I thought it would be uninteresting. But when you shared the story about when you denied against bears, just like yeah. walking around, I was surprised by how many people reached out to us and were like, yes, that is also my experience. Thank you for bringing that up. Follow up on the bear. Uh, <laughs> Please. Like three miles from my house, a bear attacked a guy at a gas station. I'm pretty sure it was the same bear. Really? So I'm, I'm lucky to be alive. Is probably this this moral of the story. Listen, it's bears are unpredictable. Yeah, bears beats Battlestar Galactica. I, I guess the bear just like ran out of the woods and like scratched the dude on the back, like pushed him up against his car and scratched the dude on his back and then ran away. Took like, his a, wallet, and it wasn't like he was parked at a like he wasn't like in the woods. He was like at a gas station. <laughs> the the bear just ran out of the woods. Was it Papa Z's? It was Papa Z's, former, formerly known as Papa Z's. Yeah, rest. Best yeah. name for a gas station slash convenience store? I don't know what you call slash it. Slash deli? It's an oasis in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> they used to have this glorious uh, mural of the guy who was Papa Z somehow baking cookies. And they, they it got bowed up by like some corporate organization. And now they got rid of the mural. Makes me sad. Would you say that that mural, though, was one of those examples where it's not like a particularly flattering image, like somebody painted of a person and it kind of looked a little bit weird? Yeah, it's like Toy Story 1 where all of the people actually look a little terrible. Yeah, <laughs> they call that the Uncanny Valley. Have you ever heard about the Uncanny Valley? No. Is is this like being spread too thin over bread? Because <laughs> it's kind of like that. No, no. Like there, it's a like a real measurable effect that. As like oh, a, like a robot about. or or something yes. that's like anthropomorphic, as it approaches anthro like more and more human like, like positive feelings towards it increase with its its increasing humanness, and then there's a period where it looks it looks kind of like a human, but you can tell it's not. Where like all of a sudden people are really disgusted by it, and then when it becomes human again or looks really human, like the affection towards it or favorable feelings spikes back up. So there's like this trench called the uncanny Valley. Yes. And that poster or that mural was definitely in the uncanny Valley where you'll pull it up and you're like, I've never not wanted chocolate chip cookies, but now that that <laughs> monstrosity is baking them, I'm not interested. I don't want that thing serving yeah. it to me. I will, exactly. I will not eat your chocolate chip cookies, exactly. sir or robot or whatever creature you are. It's a true story. Yeah, that's great. Well, speaking of that, <laughs> there's there's no transition. There's no way to make this smooth. We're just there is not. full stop. Now we're going to talk about our topic. Let's change courses, shall yes. we? Let's let's get to the main event. That was just the opening. So if you're listening to this for the first time, there is more good stuff yet yes. to come, hopefully. Yes. So I mentioned that this is actually the second part of this two-part series we've called Freedom to Believe. And I would encourage anybody who hasn't heard the first part, that happened about two weeks ago. And it's called Freedom to Believe Part One. And so we talked a little bit about what it means to understand whether or not we're actually, of course, free to believe. Are we free to accept Christ or not? Is this something that we do in our own volition, our partial volition? And we do it in tandem with what God has done? Is it all of God's work in us? And these questions, of course, are perennial. They're eternally contemporary. And in that first episode, we spoke a little bit about human depravity and its role in this question and I want to spend a whole second conversation with you just talking about freedom to believe in the rubric of free agency and free will, which sounds super nerdy. 
Yeah. But my guess is that most people maybe haven't taken the time to consider what it means to understand these two concepts and how it relates to what it means to be saved in Christ. And so we have to talk a little bit about, well, what is human freedom? When people say like, well, you're free to believe or you have a choice, what does that mean? And perhaps hopefully in our conversation, we can start to get people to listen carefully to what others are saying so that they can, I would say, slowly start to compartmentalize the arguments and therefore have a greater point of entry into conversation. So we'll talk about things like, are humans really free to believe? Are we free moral agents? And what does that mean if we are? And then what does it mean to understand what Christ has done for us in God's grand plan of redemption? So let's start with this. Let's start with this just basic, something that people have asked all the time and sometimes ask of us, and that is, is a human free to believe? In other words, to answer, I think, that question, we have to distinguish between these nerdy terms, which many people are going to think are not necessary for us to talk about what we need to, and that is free agency and free will. It's simplistic and misleading to say without qualification, in my opinion, that man is free or man is not free. To say that man has free agency is to say that he is free to do what he wants. And it's more accurate, meaningful to say that the human will is free to choose whatever the heart desires. But apart from the interposition of divine grace, no one wants or wills to have Christ in his or her thinking or life. So that's where I'm starting us off on. So like, Go go from there. Like, what do you, what do you think about what I'm saying there in terms of like that definition of trying to parse out this idea of free agency and free will? Yeah. So there, there's a couple different things sort of to bring to bear, right? So most people, when they think of the concept of freedom or free will, they think of a concept called libertarian free will. Yes. And libertarian free will, although there's different kinds of libertarian free will, and this is not a technical definition, libertarian free will basically says that when the will when the will acts. Uh, or when a person acts according to their will, that there's nothing logically prior to that will that determines what the will is. So the will is free in that it is the will itself is undetermined. That's yes. not to say that a person acts apart from their will, because that's that's totally incoherent. And the, the reason that I bring this up is because that's what most people are thinking when they think of libertarian free will. They think about this sort of like person who has this unlimited range of, of options in front of them and there's nothing prior to their own decision which would cause them to take one or the other. But when you think about that definition, libertarian free will in and of itself, regardless of whether you're a Calvinist or not a Calvinist, libertarian free will in and of itself is incoherent right. because it, it's – it's inconceivable to think of a person that is not somehow being influenced or determined in a sense by the things that are affecting them. Right. Before I, before I had like a rubric for Calvinism, you know, I've kind of, I've kind of brought up the fact that I didn't come into reformed theology in the sort of traditional route. I came into reformed theology sort of backwards in that I already believed most of the things that, uh, reformed theology teaches without kind of knowing that it was called reformed theology. And one of the things that I remember distinctly is I was having a conversation with somebody and we were talking about whether or not uh, a person could choose other than they actually chose. Right. So, so if you look at any historical event, let's just say uh, Kanye West declaring that he's running for president, which I guess happened this morning or yesterday, maybe. Right. Could Kanye have chosen not to do that? Well, on one level, yes, of course, he could have chosen not to do that. But on another level, if you look at all of the different causal effects that led up to that, whatever it was that caused him to choose to run for president or to I suppose he isn't actually running for president yet, but to say he's running for president, whatever it was that caused that is an effect. And all effects are caused by something. So to say libertarian free will exists in the way that the sort of philosophical category of libertarian free will is const- is constrained would be to say that there is somehow some uncaused effect and that uncaused effect is the human will. And so when we, when we look at it from that perspective, 
even even the most ardent atheist, if you would say, well, are your decisions entirely, utterly arbitrary and uncaused? Most of them would say, well, no, of course not. Like there are reasons why I, I chose A versus B. Right. And in some situations, they would even say like it was inevitable that I chose A given all of these other contextual elements that are in play. I think that's actually a helpful distinction and a really good starting point because I think a lot of that idea of libertarian free will is – smuggled into some evangelical understanding then yeah. Oh, of yeah, for sure. salvation. And so not all the time, because I want to be fair, but I think there's a large part where people are basically saying what they're implying is that the will is completely unencumbered and undetermined. I actually like yes. the use of your word determined, because I think what we need to ask is if the will precedes the choice, we have to ask, is there anything about me that would indicate in just in normal life, like the type of clothes and style that you'd like to wear or the type of food that you like to eat, that none of that has been in some respects accumulated as a course of experience or circumstance, like you said. So if in small things, the will has been determined, then how much more if we take that, that logic and push it out to the larger things, should we also be able to conclude that the will then is in some way determined, that there is something that is behind it that pushes us in particular in one direction over the other, even b- before we get into other theological concepts like total depravity, is it true that the will is determined? And I think we have to say, even in small decisions, yes, there is, there is a component. In other words, it's it's not completely unencumbered. We can't say it's, it's a harder argument to say there is nothing whatsoever that has impacted my decisions that I made it not just objectively, but without any kind of outside or inside influence, right? Like to make a decision in such a way where you are totally unbiased from any kind of perspective, any kind of circumstance, any kind of influence, both present or historical is I think really difficult to make whether you're choosing between ice cream flavors or you're trying to make that come to bear in your theology. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read something um, that I think speaks or, or comments directly on this. And this is out of um, Herman Witsius' Economy of the Covenant Between God and Man. And it's in the chapter titled On Regeneration. Um, and I'm not sure who Macarius is, but he's quoting someone named Macarius. He says, not unlike to what Macarius says in Homily 12, quote, when Adam began to entertain evil thoughts and devices, he perished as to God. We say not he perished altogether, was destroyed and quite dead, but that though as to God he was dead, yet he was alive as to his own nature. And then that's the Mm. end of his quote. He says, what Macarius affirms of Adam is universally true for all. For in a man spiritually dead, there is really a natural or animal life, which though not active in that which is good, is doubly active in that which is evil. The understanding, not apprehending the wisdom of God, looks upon it as foolishness. Yet when it would find wisdom in the things of God, it transforms them by mad presumption. So what he's saying here, what Macarius was saying is that for Adam... When Adam, uh, when Adam uh, decided or when Adam uh, was influenced or whenever Adam's will turned towards uh, disobeying God, that was the moment where he actually perished unto God, where his course was set, as it were. Now, you know, the scripture seems to say that the sin actually happened when Adam partook of the apple or of the fruit. But what he's saying here is that his course was set when his will was oriented away from God. Right. And so even though we say he's dead to God, he wasn't dead dead, right? He, he wasn't actually dead. He hadn't been destroyed. He didn't cease to exist. But what we're talking about is that at, in reference to movement towards or service towards God, he was dead. And then Witsius takes this a step further and says, what, what was true of Adam in that first moment of orienting his will away from God is true of all of us apart from Christ. Namely that although we are still active, although we still have a natural or animal life, it's only active in evil. It's actually doubly yes. active in evil. And that's really what we're talking about is that this freedom that we're talking about, when we say freedom to believe, we're not talking about a, an utter freedom, right? The the unregenerate man is not free to believe, but not because there's some external force presenting them or preventing them, but because their own will, their own desire, their own course has been set. Right. Right. If you think about like... Um, 
you you use the analogy of a golf ball of like a golf ball. I'm not a golfer, but I understand how this how this concept works. Is if you get your direction off, you slice that ball just one one degree. Well, if you're only if you're only hitting it a foot or two, like that's not that big of a deal. Right. But if you're hitting it, you know, 300 yards or 400 yards, which I think is a really long that's golf, an amazing a golf, really shot. Long <laughs> golf drive, right? If, if you're if you're driving that ball 300 yards and you're one degree off your target. You're going to end up like several hundred yards off of your target. Like, I mean, I'm sure somebody could do the math on me uh, on what that actually is, but you're going to result in a large variance from where you're at. And in the same way, when someone who is unregenerate has their will oriented away from God, even in some theoretical situation where it was only one degree off from what God actually intended them to do. By the time the course of their life is laid in and brought to its end, they've actually gone far of the mark. And that's why we say that a person is not free to believe uh, prior to regeneration because their course is set and they cannot and will not deviate from that course unless uh, the Holy Spirit actually reorients their course. And that's what we're talking right. about is an adjustment of heading, an adjustment of course that the Holy Spirit takes you off the, I mean, the scripture uses this language, right? You're either on the, the wide road that leads to destruction and there's no way off of it, right? Everyone who's on that road will, will come to destruction except for those whom the spirit now takes off of that road and brings onto the road that leads to life. And that road necessarily leads to life. So you're, you're on one or the other road and you, you don't have the choice to change the road on your own. You don't have the ability, but that doesn't mean you're not actively walking on that road. You're engaging right. your will to walk on that road. It's not until the Holy Spirit changes which path, which way you're on that you, you see that you're able to go a different direction. I think at this point we're contractually obligated to reference Pilgrim's Progress. Yes. So yeah, everybody. I don't see, know who wrote the contract, but you're right. It, it's see Pilgrim's. It's in Progress. the contract. It's crazy. Yeah. See Pilgrim's Progress for more information. You're exactly right, and that's where I think that this is a, a remarkably helpful question because I'd say maybe it's complicated, but not necessarily difficult. And yeah. what I mean by that is we're talking about the fact that yes, humans are free moral agents, but. We have to understand what that means. And that's the context you've just laid. A person's freedom consists in their ability to act according to one's desires right. and inclinations without being compelled to do otherwise by something or someone external to himself. So as long as one's choice is the volitional fruit of one's desire, then the will is unencumbered. Right. That's free moral agency. The problem goes deeper than the asking, well, are we free moral agents? The question is, what is the will like? And that's what you've just described there. Right. The will is bent away toward God. It is a will that wants to strike the golf ball, as it were, very far off course. That's far a flight of the fairway. That is the will. Can you make every choice commensurate with that will? Of course. But that's exactly our very problem. That's the difference between free moral agency and free will. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it this way, right? Um, I have a dog. I love my dog, but my dog can only do things as a dog. Right. right. There's dog no nature. option. Right. There's no option for her to do anything other than the way a dog does it by definition. But even within that dog nature, she makes choices. Right. She she chooses to lay down on this spot or that spot. She chooses uh, to go to the bathroom in the house or to do what she knows she's supposed to and sit by the door until I take her out. Right. She makes choices within that framework, within that context. But she's constrained by those dogs. She can't have a rational thought. She can't, she can't do algebra. She can't choose to fly. She can't choose right. to hold her breath underwater for 30 minutes, right? She can't do those things because she's a dog, right? And the same way, uh, or in a similar way, we as unregenerate creatures, as unregenerate humans, we have a constrained nature. We're constrained by the boundaries of what it means to to be an unregenerate human at odds and at enmity with God. And that's the miracle of salvation, right? The miracle. And again, we get into these, um, we get into dicey water. I don't think there are any Armenians left listening to the show because we've offended them enough, but <laughs> I, it's not my intention to misrepresent Armenians here. This is what I, sure. I genuinely think their theology uh, kind of results in is they want you to believe that the miracle of salvation is, is that God has provided a way for you to be saved as long as you 
take advantage of it. Like that's the miracle of salvation. Right. And when I remember, like I distinctly remember in high school when I was I was trying my best to witness to and to win my friends for Christ, right? And and I remember distinctly thinking at times like why is it that I was presented with this message? I was presented with this gospel and I accepted it. Like what was it about me? And I remember resisting the idea of thinking that like somehow I was, I had it all together. I was, I was so smart or I was so wise or I made the right decision. I just, there was something instinctive that knew that that was the wrong reasoning. But in reality, like that's the answer that the Arminian has to give is that like the person who's a Christian made a good decision. They made a good decision. Sure. And they did it. I don't want to say apart from the help of the Holy Spirit, but that same help that they were provided by the Holy Spirit is also provided for the person down the road who didn't make that decision. So the difference really is in the sinner, not in the choice or free determination of, of the father. And and that's the miracle of salvation for the Arminian. And I would actually argue for the Lutheran as well. The, the Lutheran, the miracle of salvation for the Lutheran is that the sinner didn't resist. The sinner didn't fight right. back. Right. In this case, the sinner didn't fight back. But in that case where the person did, they aren't they aren't justified because they resisted the Holy Spirit. Where right. in, in Calvinist theology, what we're saying is like the Lord can't be resisted. The Lord cannot be overcome. He's he's a mighty warrior. He's victorious in battle, even when and maybe especially when that battle is the battle over our souls. He takes the victory because he's the sovereign Lord and he does what he pleases. And we, we I don't know that we can go further than that. But in Calvinism, that's the miracle of salvation is that yes. God chose sinners. Right. God justified the ungodly. That's the miracle of salvation. Not that the less godly than someone else didn't choose salvation or that the the more ungodly resisted salvation, but that God justified the ungodly. Well, they were still sinners. Well, they were still his enemies. Christ died for them. That's the miracle of salvation. And this, that act of God's loving kindness in changing and transforming, regenerating the will is a great act of love. I, I think sometimes we often miss that or it gets misrepresented yeah. as somehow God is trying to create automatons that will only accept him. When we say that, of course, God is irresistible in this fashion. It is to say that the will being naturally bent toward destruction, when it is transformed in such a way that it now loves God because God has transformed it, that is the best of all things. That in right. fact, we should all want that. So it's, it's almost like you're given between the option of sinking the ship and going down with the ship or having glorious life, then we right. should always want the glorious life. And to say that somebody would come and rescue somebody who is bound for destruction, for slavery, that I, I don't understand how we cannot see that as a loving thing. And that's the way in which the Bible presents the gospel message. Yeah. I actually think we should press this point because what you brought up is something that I think is really helpful in particular nuance. Because the question is, well, if Christ should offer to save a man, then can't he at least avail himself of that promised redemption? Like, in other words, although he cannot save himself, the person cannot save himself, can he not at least ask Christ to do it for him? Right. And the scripture does not portray people as merely sick or even confined to intensive care. They're spiritually dead. And I, I right. want to quote George Whitfield here because he apparently had a loud voice. And I just think this is a, a really relevant quote to what we're talking about. Here's what Whitfield writes. He says, Come ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners, come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, locked up and stinking in the dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go nearer to him. Be not afraid. Smell him. Ah, how he stinketh. Stop there now, pause a while, and whilst thou art gazing upon the corpse of Lazarus, give me leave to tell thee with great plainness, but greater love, that this dead, bound, entombed, stinking carcass is but a faith representation of your poor soul in its natural state. Yeah. For whatever thou believest or not, the spirit which thou bearest about with thee, sepulchred in flesh and blood, is as literally dead to God and as truly dead in trespass and sin as the body of Lazarus was in the cave. That's a mouthful. 
I'm it is, just but, sitting here going, man, better you than me. I would have tripped all over that. But that see, this is the beautiful thing is what we're talking about here is there is important nuance in how we understand what God has done for us. And part of that is the setting that we tried to at least place last time. This idea that man is so entombed in his own sin that, you know, the Apostle Paul was like a really, as we might say in New England, like wicked smart dude. And so when he says that you are dead in trespass and sin, he is using particular language. He's not just trying to emphasize, well, you have a hurdle in your life, that right. if somebody could give you the right information, that if somehow you're, because you are a free moral agent, if we could just reverse the poor decisions that you made, the poor pretense or context in which you make decisions, then you would naturally come to the altar and you would bow the knee and say, yes, I recognize Jesus is Lord of all, that he provides life because now I understand it and I've been able to internalize it the essence of my being. None of that we find in the gospel. And so the difference between that course, like the free moral agency to make choices commensurate with your nature and free will is to say that with free will, we're saying a person has free will if they have equal ability or power to accept or reject any and all propositions, even if such propositions are opposed to their desire. Right. And so I think that we have a really, we have a large problem here with trying to say that people have free will and therefore that leads to freedom to believe. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read this definition of regeneration also out of Witsia's same chapter. He says, regeneration is the supernatural act of God, whereby a new and divine life is infused into the elect person, spiritually dead. And that from the incorruptible seed of the word of God made fruitful by the infinite power of the Holy Spirit. And th- this, the reason I read this and, and this just was, you know, I'm reading Witsius as kind of part of my devotional studies. And this, this just came up at the right time. And what he's saying here is that regeneration, you know, we think of regeneration and we think of like, oh, God creates faith in us. Like we have all these true things that we think of. But what we think of is like God makes some sort of like tweak in our brains that causes us to be able to do the right thing. Like that's even like reformed thinkers tend to think about regeneration that way. Like God builds faith in us. He imparts knowledge in us. And then we act accordingly. But what I like about this definition is, is what he's saying is like God infuses this new life into a dead creature. He, he right. Im, Im, embeds yes. or infuses this new life. And then the miracle of that is that that new life just does what new life does right? That new life is the incorruptible seed of the word of God. And because that seed is incorruptible and made fruitful, it's made fruitful by the infinite power of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about freedom to believe, we're not talking about some barrier being removed from us or some intellectual bugaboo being overcome, right? We're not talking about a convincing argument, Although those things are important and God uses those things in the process of regeneration to sort of break down barriers, like all those things are true. Like we're presuppositionalists, but that doesn't mean there aren't evidences that that God uses. But the real core kernel of what this is, is that God is taking someone who's dead and only can do what dead things do, namely rot and stink. Right. That, that's yes. what dead things do. They decompose. They give off vile smells and gases and they make things gross. Right. That's what that's what the unregenerate man is. They do nothing but give off vile, bad deeds. Right. They, they continue to dissolve and, and decay and give off evil, bad deeds. That's what unregenerate men do. But once that new principle of life has been infused into the person, the Holy Spirit infallibly brings about new life and what new life does. It grows, it, it reproduces, it blossoms, right? If you think about the difference between a flower that's wilting and a flower that's thriving, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. No one is surprised when a wilted flower loses a petal, right? Right. Nobody's surprised when a dried up flower dissolves into dust because that's what dead flowers do. But no one is also surprised when a healthy, thriving flower blossoms and is beautiful because that's what healthy, thriving flowers do. And that's the principle of spiritual life that we're trying to get at here when we talk about regeneration. I think we need to be honest with ourselves. Like we're having this conversation when we're speaking with loved ones or friends. We need to kind of go to this place where we try to ask pointed questions about how we understand our ability to do certain things. Right. And in the context of the gospel, what we're basically saying is free will We're trying to at least say that man is 
as able to believe as to disbelieve and that this ability springs forth from his own making and is native to him, notwithstanding his fallen sinful state. Like that, that's what we're after is like, how can we answer that question? Is that true? That statement, is it, or is it not? Does the Bible explain to us whether or not that is the proper context, which understander to ask the question of who believes and who doesn't right. A man's will is the extension and invariable expression of his nature. And so as he is, so he wills. A man is no more free to act or to will or to choose contrary to his nature than like an apple tree is free to produce acorns. That is what the scripture tells us. That is what the definition he just gave us. In other words, we need something so far transcendent outside of ourselves that there's no way that we could manufacture it within us. And so does God give each the opportunity to believe well, in a way, yes, he does, but but mankind always, invariably, inevitably, without pause, but no less willingly and voluntarily rejects the opportunity. That is our normative position and state. And so if that is what is normative, then this idea that there's somehow we have the freedom to believe in the libertarian sense right. should be completely destroyed because not only is that not what the scripture tells us, but that's also not our experience. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we should be able to see that. And I think if people are hearing this or maybe challenged by this idea, I would argue that maybe you're far more reformed than you think you are. Even yeah. if that's like little bit reformed or reformed curious, so to speak, what you're sensing is what the Bible teaches. And that is there's nothing in this idea of salvation that we can do for ourselves, that we're so far away from God that what we need is not just better understanding, better manuscripts, better teaching. No good argument took out that heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. Only the spirit of God does that. Right. And so if that's true, then it's always in every way and always true. Not partially true, not part and parcel, not based on certain circumstances. It must be always 100% only that God does the work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I recently have been on kind of a kick of like studying and learning about quantum physics. And one of the things it's just. (laughs) You can't just say that. When did this happen? (laughs) It's just it's just like a hobby of mine lately. It's okay. like watching right, YouTube videos about physics. And one of the things that you find that is stunningly um, consistent about physicists prior to the advent of quantum physics is that they're all determinists, right? They they all yes, look at true. they all look at reality and say, even the even the materialists of them all look at it and say, if everything is matter in motion, everything is just a collision of particles. Well, then you just need to calculate, you know, if you had all of the knowledge in the world, you could calculate all of the collisions and the angles and you would know everything about what would happen. And everything that happened is just a result of what happened before. And everything that's going to happen is just a result of what's happening now. Right. It wasn't until we get to quantum physics where there all of a sudden was. And and this is this is really telling what quantum physics does uh, on a on a real like macro level is it it divorces the idea of cause and effect. Right. It now had you now have effects that could be uncaused because they're they're legitimately ar- arbitrary and spontaneous. Right. And so it's it's interesting to look at that because if you have an idea of a really genuinely uncaused um, human will, like a, a will that is not not only is it not bound by anything, but it's not caused by anything. Right. You almost have to reject the concept of God. Like if, yes, if you really exactly. follow that out to its logical. And you have to reject the concept of God, because if God created all things, then at least in some sense, he created the constraints that your will operates in. Right. If, if we're just talking about the 20th century, like a baby who was born in 2020 in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Right. Let's let's pretend the worst case scenario happens and we live in this this isolation world for the rest of, of the rest of the next 20 years where none of us can leave our house. Well, that baby was born into a context where he didn't have certain things that he was free to do. Right. So even if even if we're just talking about the context that a person is born into, God still determines the the boundaries of that person's life. Um, 
And so if you're really going to go to the idea of a totally uncaused and uncoerced and unaffected will, you have to reject the concept of God. And this is where we get people like Greg Boyd or Clark Pinnock or the, the real radical open theist process theologians right. that actually are honest enough to say like, yeah, well, we, we just reject this idea that God is in control. We just reject this idea that he knows what's going on and that he's not, he's not affected by anything. We just reject that idea. And when you, when you understand theology properly, and we, we've had this conversation. We've made this point lots of times. I went into depth on it in the episode about uh, SBC traditionalism I recorded with Trevor Marsteller when I was at um, at the Presbyter- uh, Philadelphia Reform Conference. If you reject, you understand theology proper to reject that concept of God who is in control, who determines things, who created all things, who constrains all things, who in him everything subsists. If you reject that, you're really just rejecting the Christian God. And right. so I actually have a lot of respect for the, the the atheists who actually go the full Monty and just reject God instead of trying to reshape God into some idea that they can have, which just renders God's a cre- God a creature. And that's part of why we're saying like libertarian free will as it's conceived is incoherent because not even God has that kind of libertarian free will. The most free, you know, God is the most free being is part of like the definition of what it means to be God is to be most free. Even God doesn't have that kind of freedom. And, and the way I've always gotten at this when I'm, I'm talking with someone is I'll say, well, if you think that God has this kind of radical freedom to do whatever he wants, apart from uh, a, some sort of constraint by his nature, does the father have the freedom not to love, not to love the son? And if they say, well, yeah, of course he does. Well, if the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the father and the son, and the father has the freedom not to love the son, then of course, then maybe the Holy Spirit's a contingent being. And and when you start to look at that, if, if not even God is free in that way, and not even God could be free in that way because it's incoherent, then what kind of nonsense are we talking about when we say that all of a sudden creatures have a freedom and an ability and a, a, a... an unbounded existence right. in a way that not even God does. Right. Yeah, that's fair. I think that see the whole point of bringing this up was that I think we sometimes start in the wrong place. We start with the conclusion, which is, oh, of course everybody has a right to choose, Right. which by the way is probably distinctly American, like American yeah, yeah. By, by itself. But this idea that everybody has a right and as some equal playing field of which to make this decision. And we don't back that up into the theology. We just say, well, this seems like what is fair. It seems like what a loving God would purport. And yet that's not at all, of course, what the scriptures promulgate. And we have to start with everything that I hope we've covered, which is this idea of understanding our will, because all of us have a will and we're all capable of exercising it in making choices. But what we're saying is that when confronted with the gospel, we cannot will well. Right. And that's the problem. We need God. In fact, the, the irony is, even while we're in our sin, even while we are the enemy, we desperately, in a sense, want to be conquered. Yeah. Because the greatest thing for us is to be able to will well, which only God can do by the power of the Holy Spirit in a regenerated life and heart. And so we're not kept from believing against our wills. I like that you said that. Because even Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. But the problem is, as Jesus goes on to say that no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So right. what do we do with that passage? Because it's not just a matter of some setting out some kind of process. What Jesus is there is, is making a statement about the human condition. The reason no man can come is because it's not in our nature to come. It is our nature and therefore our will to flee from Christ and not to come with him. And, and not only that, we love to flee. We love to yeah. run away. That's a place where we'd really like to be. And so we have to think about not just this idea of, well, you know, it's, it's, it is of the Father who in eternity past gave us to the Son and now in time draws us to faith. So I think simply put, no one of himself or herself wants to be saved, but whoever by God's power is made willing will be saved. So I think actually that most, I'm going to be fair, as judicial as I can, I think, and generous maybe as I can, most evangelicals would agree with this principle in the sense that like, well, you tell me this is unfair, that like we, we have to be made willing to be saved. It's though this acknowledgement of like how willing Right? right? Like, is it just partially where like, again, I come forward, I've somehow elevated myself to the place of the deserving poor and I come forward with empty hands and therefore I say, yes, God, I receive your gift. Or are what we're saying here is that 
even that is nonsense. Yeah. That it's not about some kind of a volitional choice because you have been given like partial ability or partial reality, but that all of this starts with God and ends with God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is another analogy that I think gets at it is imagine that there was somebody was throwing a party, right? Okay. And, and they said in their own head, anyone who comes to my house is welcome at the party. I will not, I will turn no one away from my party, but never sent out any invitations. Nobody knew about this party. It, it would be true to say that everyone in the world was free to come to this party, that no one would be prevented. But if nobody knew about the party, then in another sense, they don't have the freedom to go to the party because they lack the knowledge and the will to be able to execute that. Right. So, so that, that's what we're talking about is when we're talking about the gospel, everyone is free to come to the gospel. There's no one that is, is prevented for coming to Jesus apart from their own knowledge and will to do so. And, and now, now you take that same analogy and you say, all right, now this person is going to send out invitations. They're going to choose people to notify about the party and then take it one step farther. Not only are they going to notify them about this party, but they're going to make it so appealing to them that they would feel stupid to not go to this party, right? That's what we're talking about with the gospel is it's not that the Holy Spirit has a bouncer at the door that says, you're not on my list. looks like you can't come in. Right. It's that the Holy Spirit says, there's a party and I'm going to, I'm going to invite the people whom, whom I've been delegated to invite, right? I'm going to call those whom the father has chosen. And what's more beyond just calling those, I'm actually going to make it so irresistible to them. So beautiful and wonderful that they cannot but come to the party. And, and right. I know like it sounds a little irreverent to talk about it as a party, but like that's the that's the imagery the Bible uses, right? The wedding feast of the lamb, right? We've all been given this invitation to the wedding and we've not only been given the invitation, but we've been given the clothes we need to do it, right? We've been made righteous in God's sight. So not only are we allowed to come to the party, but we're welcomed at the party. We're, we're the guest of honor at the party because we are in Christ, Right. When you when you go to an event, whatever the event is, if you're if you're attending that event as someone's guest, your prestige at that event is in large part determined by the person you're accompanying. Right. right? If, if you go to the Grammys because you want a ticket on the radio and you go with like some other Joe Schmo who also won tickets on the radio, like that's not a big deal. The camera's not going to stop and talk to you. But if the person who won the best actor award chose you to be their guest, you, I guarantee you, you're going to get interviewed, right? So it's the same kind of thing that when we come to Christ, it's not, or when we come before the father, right? When we are, are in the last day and we're facing this judgment in which we'll be acquitted and acknowledged, it's not as though, uh, we're there on our own volition in a pure sense, but we've been invited by the father and now we're, we're accompanied with the son. So when we come in, he looks on us. He's as pleased with us as he is with his own righteous, perfect son, whom he's had eternal delight in, right? He was complete in his delight with the son. That's the delight that he delights in us with. And that can only happen because this process of regeneration in which the spirit, the spirit draws those and infallibly brings those whom the father has chosen into his kingdom we have to do it freely because that's the way that creatures exist. But we have to understand what that freedom is. It's not an utter freedom to do whatever. It's right. not as though people who have no knowledge of the kingdom, who have no desire to be part of it and have no, no understanding of how to become part of it can somehow suddenly just make it, just figure it out. Nobody stumbles into the kingdom. Right. That's well said. That, I think that is as beautiful as any place to end this conversation. I hope that this kind of, talk has been helpful to people. I think what I would love for Christians is to have these conversations with their loved ones, with their spouses, with their friends, with their elders in their church, with their pastors, because there's so much here that helps us to, I think, be efficacious Christians. Because at the end of the day, we're all in common footing with respect to answering the question, what is happening here? Either the blood of Christ, the death of Christ and resurrection is efficacious for salvation, or it's the personal choice of the person that's efficacious for salvation, but it can't be both. And we would certainly think almost all Christians, for the most part, with some exception, would agree that there is for those 
some eternal punishment and some eternal reward. And so we have to really be particular about how we parse out how that takes place. And this is just, I think, a practical and actually very loving conversation to have. And I think it empowers us. I hope people have been maybe challenged and encouraged, strengthened, given maybe a little bit of insight or something else to go and look into the scriptures to test whether what we're saying is in fact truly the case. But no matter what the end, all of that is really helpful in bringing about a Christian walk that follows closely after what the Lord Jesus is is teaching us, has taught us and is teaching us. Yeah. You know, maybe one last thought to close on that I've always thought was interesting is most of the time when someone is becoming a Calvinist, the last uh, petal of the tulip to fall into place, so to speak, is limited atonement. Sure. And ironically, the reason it's the last to fall into place is because people resist it because they think it actually presents a challenge to God's sovereignty. Right. To say that somehow God's somehow Christ's sacrifice was not enough to bring everyone into the kingdom, or that somehow somehow Christ didn't didn't have what it takes to save everybody, which is usually the way that people think of it. They they resist it because they think that's an affront to the sovereignty of God or it's a front to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. But in reality, and this is this is why I, I think this is part of why so many so many Calvinists cage stage so hard on limited atonement, is it's actually precisely the opposite. Right? right. Limited atonement is what what protects the fact that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, that it was sufficient to accomplish exactly what he intended, right? That, that none were lost that he attempted to save, right? And if you're an Arminian, if you're a Lutheran, uh, if you're a Roman Catholic, if really, if you're anyone other than a Calvinist, you have to say that Christ died for some people that he really intended and wanted to save. And he, and he just couldn't, he just couldn't do it either because they, you know, in Lutheranism, they fought him too hard or in Arminianism, they weren't convinced enough or in Roman Catholicism, they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't appropriate it, the grace to themselves and they didn't cooperate. I mean, however you want to parse it out, you have to say that if the atonement is not limited by the intent of Christ, then it somehow is limited by the uh, efficacy Right. And, and that's what we're talking about here is that we're talking about the fact that God calls whosoever he pleases, but whosoever he pleases will necessarily come because he is an efficacious God who gets what he desires and accomplishes what he intends. And that's why I say that this is wonderfully complicated, but maybe not all that difficult. I think what's, what's challenging here is just being honest with ourselves and why we hold a particular opinion is, do we hold it oftentimes because it seems most convenient or because it makes us feel good? And there's no doubt that many hold this idea of like, we have full freedom to believe because it seems like that's what is fair. It makes us feel comfortable. And yet at the same time, we'd also argue and we time eludes us to really unpack this point, but We've talked about before how really only this reform perspective allows for or supports or again, according to scripture, allows for God to be completely sovereign in his saving, which includes situations like unborn children, for instance. Like either we have to start making compromises and everything dies by a million cuts because we make all these different concessions, or we can take the Bible at its face and we can trust in what it says. And what it says is that God does the saving by his sovereign power. He is great and strong and mighty to save. And he does this in every way. And so whether we are praying that somebody might be healed from cancer by God, literally extracting that from their body, or that we're saying that we are praying for somebody to be saved. And that is a prayer we must understand against a person's will that we are understanding that God is sovereign enough to make that choice and to elect it by his kindness and his goodness. It is justice that everybody would get what they deserve. It is mercy that any single person would be saved. And we have a God of mercy who does that by his own sovereign power in his election. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably as good a place as any to stop. Um, Sorry, I, I laughed because that's what I said of what you I know, said I know. like five minutes ago. Well, let's just keep going. So what's the next amazing <laughs> statement we're going to make? Well, you know what? This, this kind of proves the point is I hope that I, I want to do this uh, to close maybe is just to encourage everybody to have this kind of conversation. Maybe you don't want to have a conversation, this type of conversation, this theological perspective uh, conversation about with somebody in particular, but I, I would challenge you to have it because 
there's something about talking with you where I just always feel so encouraged at the end. Like it actually drives me back into the scriptures, drives me to doxology and prayer and to praise to our great and amazing God. And this is the iron shop burning iron thing. Like we throw that verse around a lot, but we seldom actually put it into practice. Yeah. And conversation is such a simple way. Even if like you want to blame us, like call a friend up and say, I was listening to these, these two strange guys on a podcast talking about freedom to believe. And I just thought we should chat about that because I know we both love God. What's your perspective on that? And to go into the scriptures and to talk about it together. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't say it any better. I mean, I think this is the kind of stuff that is, it's paradoxical in that you don't always see how it functions to edify the church, but it really does. Like it really is there because it's true. It edifies the church. It edifies the saints. So I'm glad that we could have this, this chat and and talk about this subject and we'll come back to it. I mean, this is a perennial issue in, in reform thinking is to try to understand this relationship between human, uh, human agency and human free agency and human free will is a really important concept for us to come back to again and again. Well, I think that's, as any place, a really good place. (laughs) No, I think that's a good place to start, to stop. (laughs) To start. This this was just the preamble. Yes. We've got a 32-part series coming your way. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, though, of course, people can reach out to us. And leave us information. If there's a topic that we, we love to do series, you and I were talking about this, yeah. we love to break apart and have a really meaningful dialogue. And some of the things that we like to talk about really deserve the kind of focused concentration that involves multiple episodes. So you can reach out to us at info at reformbrotherhood.com or there is a phone number, which really, Tony, only you remember. <laughs> what is oh, that man. phone number? I'm in trouble because my job has changed now when I have to leave voicemails for people all the time. So I like got a different phone number pounding in my head. 607-444-2767. Bros. I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. What people don't know is that when we record a series, we actually do it in one sitting, and then I I edit it and make it a bunch of episodes. So the Micah cast series took us like 30 (laughs) hours to do. Yeah, that's that's a lie. That's not true at all. Can can you imagine? Well, this has been great. Seriously, Tony, I always appreciate having a conversation with you, particularly about stuff that's that's hard. That's a little bit challenging. I think yeah. this is, uh, like you said, it's just a blessing for me. So I, I hope that if there people are tagging along and still listening at this point, that they've been blessed as well. So in that respect, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.